Mulan meets Project Runway. And that hawk is hot. That hawk is definitely hot. And lighting stuff on fire and smashing hands. I mean, I would I would pick Angel over Edward if we're, if we're making choices here. Okay, welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books in order to stay connected. I'm James Earl and I'm metaphorically stitching this friendship together using this podcast. Aww. And I'm Melissa Hansen, and I've got the magic in me. <laughs> and today we're discussing Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. And just as a quick reminder to our listeners, we do not believe in spoilers on this podcast, so you can expect spoilers for Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. A lot of them. James, would you like to give a quick summary? We start in the land of Alandia. Uh, it's a monarchy. There is a, an emperor. It's an empire, I guess. Um, that's been at war for five years. We open in a pretty poor household where a tailor who was once a master has um, some children, the youngest of which is a young lady named Maya, but they're largely unsuccessful. The mother is dead. They're a struggling family, and they get a call to adventure. A man shows up and says that the court's tailor has died and that his presence is requested to become the new court tailor. However, he's unable to go. Two of his sons have died in a war. The other one uh, has lost his leg. It's, it's a sort of sad time. He's too old to go. And so, Maya. You mean Mulan. Mulan. <laughs> Mulan. <laughs> Maya accepts the call to adventure, but obviously she's a woman and can't be the court tailor. So she has to dress like her brother Keaton. And she then goes to court, has a bunch of trials a la... What's the name of that show, Melissa, that, that this one's like? Project Runway. How dare you? A la Project Runway. And <laughs> she she passes those trials. But those are not the real tri- I mean, this is like two books in one. This could have been two books in one. Uh, th- that's one sort of set of trials. And then the second set of trials is once she becomes the finalist, she is set on a task to make the dresses of Amana made from crazy things like the laughter of the sun and the tears of the moon and the blood of the stars are the three dresses. So then she has to go on, you know, this sort of second set of trials where she gathers those materials, makes those dresses, returns to court, everything is awesome, and then there's a bunch of twists and turns at the end, and she, without explaining the background behind this, she has to sacrifice herself to be a demon so that her boyfriend Eden who I didn't even mention in my summary doesn't have to be a demon I guess we'll unpack the rest of this but my summary was getting too long anyway yeah I think I want to go back to your first point about like this could have been two books yeah because it really is I actually really enjoyed the first part of the novel. The Project Runway. Right? I mean, I'm always going to love a good yeah. Mulan meets Project Runway. <laughs> the reason I liked it is it was simple. Yeah. Like the book reminded me of like a very classic fairy tale Rapunzel situation. There's some trials, you make it through, but part of it is like you are making a deal with the devil a little bit, but then in the end you're victorious. And there's this very clear arc with those trials. It felt like we went from three trials in a journey to then we had to do another three trials, Mm -hmm. which just felt too much. Too many trials. Too many trials. And I think speaks to this like larger issue I've had with a lot of the fantasy we've been reading, which is this attempt to do this enormous world building mm-hmm. where I don't think it's actually that necessary. I think that there has been something lost in like the simplicity of there are no twists. Like yeah. there's just a wonderful like the the call 
and then there's a trial, there's a climax, and then everybody's happy at the end. Return to the world with some new skills. Exactly. Like, I think if you would cut it off at the very end and she became the master tailor and had a wonderful tailor shop and a hot enchanter boyfriend, (laughs) I would have been like, five stars, great book, loved it. Yeah. I mean, there would have been something really simple about that because that would have had to come with, and then gender inequality was solved. People realized that women can be tailors too, mm-hmm. and the and, and that feels that feels like it would that we would have problems with it in a different way. No, I don't think I would. I think that because that, I think that's what I'm looking for. Is I feel like like what have I wanted in the pandemic is just Hallmark movies. Yeah. Like I want us to go back to like that sort of simplicity. I don't need a thousand different characters who are all on their own journey with like lots of nuance. Yeah. Queen's Gambit, competency porn. Yeah. She's just good at chess. She just keeps on being good at chess until she wins all the chess. Exactly. And I think even in like (laughs) speaking of like Queen's Gambit is like, but there's always like the one thing, right? What is your Achilles heel? And so much of the beginning part of it was setting it up to be magic, to be like the magic scissors. Mm-hmm. I thought that was supposed to be like her deal with Rubble Stiltskin. Mm-hmm. But then it turned out that because she has magic in her, the scissors are totally fine and that's not evil at all. And then she, once when she goes on the journey, then she has to make a deal with a demon. <laughs> right. And then that's the real Rubble Stiltskin. It's like a literal demon. It just, it was too many <laughs> steps. Yeah, let's, I mean, I think the scissors are as good a place as any to start this discussion. Because they're clearly symbolic. Mm -hmm. And I was struggling with what exactly they were symbolic of. I went between they represent family support because in the end we find out that they are her inheritance from an ancestor. I thought that at one point they simply represented privilege and like if other people are going to use their connections to get into college and you should use yours. Like why are you not using all of the things available to you to get ahead when the world is set up such that you sort of need to? But I don't know. I, I didn't really settle on anything firm. I think what frustrated me about the scissors is that she refused to use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, because it feels like cheating in the same way that like, oh, if you, I don't know, if you have a, a neighbor who's a senator or something like that and you want to use a, the letter of recommendation to get into a college, that feels like cheating and there's something icky about that and you don't want to do it. I get that. I think the reason with, with her not using the scissors, the stakes actually weren't reflecting the stakes of the situation. This is literally her family's livelihood, and she has something in her back pocket that she is refusing to use when her family is like literally like close to like having zero money, being on the streets. Yeah. So that tension, that journey, that like making the deal with the scissors, it felt like she was denying it for too long. Yeah. I think it was supposed to show her that she had integrity. And what I came around was, you're dumb. Yeah. Your right. dad and brother are fucked. Like, figure this out. Yeah, it was integrity and pride. Like, mm-hmm. she had so much pride in her ability as a tailor that she was like, I want to win this on just my talent alone. But, like, talent alone isn't the only factor in the world. There's also, you know, the inheritance, the, the you know, the, all these things matter yeah. in getting the job done. And for her, it should have been important to hold her family together. Yeah. Part of the experience of this novel is just saying, use the scissors. In the same way that Eden is constantly saying, like, use the scissors. Just use them all the time. Everyone else is using magic, Mm -hmm. or they're, like, legitimately, like, sabotaging other people and smashing their hands. Yeah, yeah. lighting stuff on fire and smashing hands. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to have that view of the world, but, like, I do think, like, use the things that are at your disposal, especially when the people you care about are in need. Yeah, check your pride at the door. And keep these things together. And as I implied in my opening, this this was a theme that I saw 
throughout the book. I, okay, so at first you hear the premise of this novel and you're like, a tailor. Uh, like, it's just not a very heroic thing. Warrior wow. and all these things. I know. But craftsmen don't usually get center stage as the heroes in these kinds of books. And so I thought, like, this is a silly thing. But obviously the metaphor kind of works. Like, she's responsible for keeping her family together. So that's one of the things she has to do here. And then the actual task is to get Lady Sarnai to agree to the marriage, which would unify the two groups that have been warring for five years. And so her little job is to stitch these two warring factions together by making a dress that's good enough. And she's good at that, too. I think she's like she's able to create connections between people in the same way she can make connections with thread and stars and moons. Yeah, I mean, I think I could probably come up with even more things. Like, she's she's stitching her family together. She's stitching the empire together. I'm sure there's something, though I haven't quite put the language to it yet, about how she's helping Eden stitch together his past and present or his present and his future or something like this. She's literally making Keaton whole as part of her trials. And so this idea of, like, mending things and stitching things together so that the stitch holds firm, there's a bunch of those kinds of metaphors throughout this book. Yeah, Let's talk about Eden. I don't know if I've just like lost my desire for like young women to fall in love with like ageless old <laughs> right. enchanted men, the age like difference. vampires and stuff. <laughs> but like, it's like a thing. No, Twilight started yeah. it or no, probably didn't start it, but like. Popularized it certainly. It's the... entered our popular imagination these days because of Twilight. Yeah. Which of course I'm sure was inspired by things like Buffy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. That's true. Angel. I mean, I would I would pick Angel over Edward if, yeah. if we're making choices here. I but pick Buffy over over Twilight. So. <laughs> I'm just like getting tired of this trope. Yeah. Why is he so into her? I actually just like don't feel like the age on him in these situations. I actually am not opposed to like the meet cute where it's like love at first sight sort of thing. Yeah. But when someone is that old, like I don't know, be a bit more jaded, man. Yeah, it, right. I, I don't mind the love at first sight thing when the protagonists are like 19 and 16 or whatever it is in Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Because like at that age, those emotions do like happen super fast. They burn super bright really fast. Mm -hmm, and it totally. is serious. And like, I'm totally okay with an author taking those things seriously because they are serious and they feel serious in the moment. But when you're like a thousand years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just don't think it operates in the same way. Like, we're in our 30s, and I don't think it operates the same way. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm thinking of, like, time, like, <laughs> like, like a thousand years from now, I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's not like she's a particularly old soul either. Like, she obviously has a lot of family and social responsibility, and she certainly has moral integrity and, and all of these things. That Like, that that's all true. But she's also, like, really innocent in the world doesn't seem like she really understands a, a lot about how right. it works which i think is like always what they're trying to play off is like that is the attraction there right it's like yeah. that they're able to see the beauty in the world again through these young women's eyes yeah it just feels like gross and predatory yeah. and in my head i like think about well that's why like i don't know seven-year-old men date 19-year-olds and that's definitely gross and so, yeah, it's been a trope in literature forever. And like, there are ways of doing it where it's not as gross. Like Odysseus, you know, when he washes up naked on the shore and he meets this like young princess, he doesn't actually do anything about it. She's attracted to him and he just takes that confidence and then is like able to become 
the thing that he needs to be in order to return home be just because of the confidence it gave him not because he acted on it or like because i don't know there are ways of of like putting yourself in that tradition and not being gross about it yeah and i think especially like if the characters get to know each other over time i think it's the in these situations you cannot have love at first sight yeah that doesn't like work well for me to like want to believe in this relationship additionally and this is something that happened with the last book we read too took you ever after there's this thing that's happening where uh, the author isn't fooling anybody. Like, there's this boy who everybody agrees is hot mm-hmm. that is doing nice things for the female protagonist. And yet, every time the boy leaves the scene, the female protagonist goes, oh, I just hate him. He's so annoying. But it's like, <laughs> no, clearly you're in love with it. Like, it's not any kind of real reader entrapment. This author was particularly bad at showing her hand on these moments. There's the... Clearly, Maya is in love with Eden thing, even though she's saying that Eden is gross or super annoying or whatever. And there's also the the trope of the shapeshifter who gets hurt while in the unfamiliar form and then shows up in the next scene with like a bruise in exactly the place that that other thing got a bruise. And then we marinate in it for like three quarters of the book before she reveals it, even though we've known it since like page 10. It felt like she was leading us to some big reveal, and it was so obvious that I actually thought that we were being entrapped as readers. See, this is why I think that this book should only have been the first half, because I think if it had just done a really simple story, those sorts of things don't become as obnoxious. Yeah, you're foreshadowing it, but also it's like not going to be double the length of the story. So you're only foreshadowing it for like a hot second. And then it also doesn't bother you that Maya is that dumb. Like, all YA books have to do this because they're all in first person. Mm -hmm. And so the audience needs to know things before the main character does. But, again, she's the narrator. And so she always looks dumb. Like, Katniss looks dumb. Maya looks dumb. And the more simple you make the rest of the story and the characters around it, the less obnoxious it feels for them to be that dumb. And, yeah, we don't need to marinate with it for three quarters of the book either. Like, Mm -hmm. you could just have something and trap us for a couple pages and then and then reveal it or like make Eden actually annoying at first yeah. like he is a million years old or whatever like you, there could have been some actual disconnect that she was feeling it's also just not that interesting of a reveal with him being a hawk like one we knew it was happening and also he's an enchanter he's magical like if we're suspending our disbelief at that level we can suspend our disbelief for he's a hawk without there being much of a, without stretching our imaginations. Well, I think that speaks to like, yeah, how could we have made his character more annoying or stranger? Like, I think the idea was, I can't remember in the beginning, but like the hawk was seeing things or doing things. And then Eden would like know things that he shouldn't know from what his level of access was. And I feel like they could have played that more and made it more of a tension in their relationship. It's like, how does he know this? Right. Is he spying on me? Yeah. And then thinking that there's something nefarious going on there. Yeah. And then, like, should I be, like, then spying on him? Like, it's more interesting for the main character to not have perfect integrity in these situations so that there is more nuance and that it's hard to have a hate-hate relationship when one of you is behaving honorably. That's interesting. You made me think about, like, what what is Maya's actual arc? Because you're right. She begins with this sort of perfect integrity, and that's what makes some of the storytelling uh, a little difficult. But she also ends with a full integrity. And so, like, what are the ways in which she changes throughout this book? I think that's the thing is, like, it must happen in the second book. Like, in the second book, her becoming a demon, yeah. there must be actual sacrifices she makes. She starts acting in ways 
that are heartless because they say like demons don't have feelings or whatever like that that is where we see it and so like that contrast should be like more painful in the second book yeah i just i wanted to see it in this book right i mean she starts off with confidence and then you know she believes that she's worthy of being the court tailor from the very beginning she never really questions this and then she just sort of gains more confidence as she goes on. Like she learns things about herself and her ability to endure pain and struggle through all of the trials of going into super cold water, getting out of the cave of despair that is the Forgotten Islands. So she sort of learns these things about herself, but she never really doubted herself in these ways either. So there's something a little shallow about those trials. Yeah. The one trial I keep coming back to is the one on the Forgotten Island, because it's very similar to the one that we saw in Raybearer. Right. Of ghosts of your biggest regrets and the things that make you saddest, like surrounding you, trying to tempt you away from your path forward. Yeah, it's Harry Potter spending time in front of the mirror um, with his family in it. This like cave of despair where you can just get sucked down that and be comfortable living with your regrets. And I feel like... I knew that she really cared about her family, obviously, and so many of them had passed, and like this would be probably her biggest trial, but it didn't seem in equal stakes mm-hmm. to what she was fighting for. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that her working in order to make this dress for a woman that she doesn't particularly like and, and her overcoming that is worth it. I guess they tried to make it so she was working for her family that she was working, like, so she's working for the people who she's seeing in this ghost form. And she's also, at this point, working for Eden. Like, I think that we're supposed to be bought into that that relationship. Yeah. One of the interesting things here is that this is kind of playing into that idea that the women are responsible for maintaining all the social connections, mm. the family connections, the political connections, that there's, like, this burden put on the females. So, like, Maya's fate is set she like has to do this thing she can't really not do it because her family needs her to do it and lady sarnai is being forced to marry this guy she doesn't really like and so like this this, like social burden is being put on the women and i think one of the things that makes it more complicated though in this book is that they're being asked to sacrifice their freedom so that the men in the book can stop sacrificing their bodies Mm. like there's been this five-year war and so there's this like sacrifice that's being made. I think the book recognizes the problems with like, oh, there's a physical burden put on men. There's this social burden put on women. And I'm not quite sold that it's disrupting those things. It's sort of just like recognizing them, maybe questioning them, but not like disrupting them. Yeah, I didn't think about it until you mentioned it. But I don't know if it bothered me as much because the thing that I usually react to in stories like this is like refrigerating women. <laughs> where women are giving that physical sacrifice of themselves in order to motivate men. So there is like an element of Maya's journey where I'm like glad. I'm like, yeah, let the woman be the protagonist and be motivated by her love for like another character. But at the same time, I'm like, can we have equal sacrifice in any situation? Does it always have to be this like one kind of sacrifice versus another kind of sacrifice to motivate each other? And also, like, could it not be romantic love? (laughs) Right. Like, I think that that, to me, was what I was really struggling with, with the, like, oh, Idan is the one who's, like, pushing her through. Like, in every case, it should be her father and her brother. And they're there. They're, like, in the background. But, like, the reason you can't, like, leave yourself on, like, the Forgotten Island is because if you fail this, 
they're screwed. They need your money. They need you to become the master tailor. Like that should be your guiding focus. And I think it was a situation where I did feel like the love interest actually took away from the character's journey. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I I think that if she kept that focus on her genuinely wanting to be a tailor, right? Like when her and Eden have these conversations and she's like, I don't think I'd stop being a tailor. Like if they figured out a way to be together and they could free him and live happily ever after, what does that look like? She says, like, I still want to be the tailor. Like, this is actually work I'm proud of. It's something I'm really good at. I have a passion for it. And she does keep that throughout. But also, like, the other defining characteristic of her is her loyalty to her family and her brothers and everything like this. And so the idea that she sacrifices being able to go home in a meaningful way at the end. Like, she can't really go home to Keaton and and her father and be there with them because now she's got to go be a demon for eternity and she's even going to like lose her memories and all these things and the reason that she's doing that is to save a dude she met a couple months ago from like a fate that he's not asking her to save him from yeah that was the other thing that this book had in common with Ray Bearer is again this whole like gin genie situation yeah I guess that's like our cool new fantasy trope that's coming back after like vampires and angels. Another bit that I think that they have in common that is positive is that they both did a good job of just blending a bunch of different mythological traditions. Like there was the Eden served for a thousand years and there's obviously these connections to a a hundred or a thousand and one nights, a hundred and one nights? A thousand and one. Yeah, of this like thousand and one night courtship and telling stories with a magic carpet ride. Oh yes, the magic carpet! I forgot. The magic carpet ride. So there's like bringing in some Chinese mythology. There's bringing in some Arabic mythology. This idea of like blending all of these stories together and telling one story, pulling from all these different places, sort of not not necessarily in equal measure, but like putting them on the same hierarchical plane, which is really nice. And I think Ray Bearer did that with African religious traditions and Christian religious traditions. And like just pulling iconography from all these places and not like giving one more value, more hierarchical value than the other. So I think that was something this book did pretty well. Yeah. And showing that fantasy does not have to be in the European medieval tradition. I wish that there was more of a allegorical, like I was trying to find the connections between her first set of trials and her second set of trials to see if there was some sort of like escalation of similar themes. And I just couldn't, I, I don't know if it was holding up to that kind of close reading. They're very upfront about the second set of trials. It's like, this one's going to test you physically. This one is going to test you mentally. This one is going to test your soul and like how passionate you can be about being singularly focused or whatever the last trial was about. And then I was like trying to apply some some kind of similar logic, like maybe not physical, mental, but like some sort of like overarching thing to each of the Project Runway trials in the beginning. And I don't think I was successful. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, I mean, I think what we what we should have felt in those trials, um, in the Project Runway trials, was, this is why I think it should have been, that was the book, is it should have been her succumbing to magic. Like, it should have been, like, as she got closer and closer to losing her spot, that she was starting to sacrifice her integrity for her family. Mm. And then what are the consequences of that? And I think a little bit of that happens in the end when she's like, this guy wins, but he used magic. (laughs) But I don't think it was as like narratively clean or like satisfying as it could have been. Nor was that character journey. What should happen is like what she becomes from the beginning of Project One Ray to the end sets her up for then a new different journey 
for the dress trials. Right. It like she learned some skills in that that allow her to do this other the the second journey, and that there's like a progression that it and that that progression escalates, which it does. I mean, in in truth, like making glass slippers is not on the same level of as capturing the laughter of the sun. Like there is an escalation there. There's an escalation, but there was nothing within me that felt like she had to go through the Project Runway trials to be successful at the yes the sun moon exactly yeah that's trials. that's exactly that's a much better way of putting it than I had put it yeah that's what I was trying to find is some connection between the two some like parallels that we could draw connections between yeah and I'm just not sure it held up to close reading there I feel like it was like the only reason it existed so it was like one you could understand like the premise of like mm-hmm. the empire and like understand all the characters mm-hmm. and then Two, so she and Adan could, like, start their thing. Yeah, so that she could be frustrated at how annoying he is. So annoying, but there's that hawk with, like, human-like eyes. Yeah, and that hawk is hot. That hawk is definitely hot. <laughs> so another thing I was I was playing around with in my head as I was reading this and thinking about books like this that have a monarch or an emperor and that that monarch or empire is hereditary, like this book is, is that oftentimes that logic of, like, the king has a son or whatever, and that son is going to become the next king. The other characters in the book are also bound by some, like, fate. And so this idea that, like, power is hereditary or some sort of skill set is hereditary, like, the ability to rule. And this one seemed to have that as well with the, like, the tailor's daughter is also a tailor. And oftentimes, obviously, this is, like, a problematic thing because these kinds of things are not inheritable. And it, like has this fixed mindset or this like way of, of perceiving one's identity as, as linked necessarily to one's father or one's mother or like that, that and that's something that they can't break out of. And this book, I think, did try to push away from that because Keaton is useless as a tailor. And so like he's also his father's son. And so like it made her experience of being a tailor more authentic because Keaton existed. And so from there, I started to think about different ways that our authentic identities chafe against some sort of external reality so like in in the types of books i was describing at the beginning of this rant power is inherited or like the skill of being a tailor is inherited or whatever it's that there's always a tension between what the external world expects you to be a tailor a prince or whatever and then what you actually are and so like you're trying to just meet expectations like the world has an expectation for you and you're trying to meet that And then there's like the opposite of that, which is like a more romantic way of thinking about your identity where you are one thing, but then there's like your true self underneath. Like you're trying to match your own expectations. You're not trying to match uh, society's expectations. And I feel like this book walked a line between the two. Like there was a societal expectation, but she also had expectations for herself. And I think that was something it did pretty well. Like it was exploring authentic identity in in an interesting way there. Because I think that Adan does fall into this too, where it's like, he made a choice to go through the trials and the idea of like what you think that you are supposed to do and then getting it and then realizing it's not actually what you want um, that plays into that as well. And that's like matching your own expectations of yourself in, in that way. I think there's a line in the book about how he makes a deal when he's young and it's like, well, you know, when you're 16 or whatever, we're living for a thousand years just seems really cool. And then you realize that it's a prison. Right. And you're tying yourself, especially in his case, like you are hoping that the people that you are bound to are good people. Yeah. And just because they are all from the same lineage does not mean that they are going to be 
all the same, all good, all competent. Yeah. And in some ways, her wanting to be the emperor's tailor, like this is also a prison. So she can get that. But but it's also something of a prison for her. And, you know, it's a trap as in the same way that his is a trap, like to be the emperor's tailor. She finds out the emperor is actually like pretty sick and isn't as handsome as he as the, the pictures <laughs> presumed he was. Okay, this is, like, another thing. Sorry, now I'm going on a tangent. But, like, Dan's, like, do not, like, don't get involved in this. I'm, like, fine with what my fate is. And she's, like, no, I'm going to, like, make a deal. I'm going to become a demon. You're going to be free. I know what's better for you. I know what's best for you, thousand-year-old man. Also, literally his magic (laughs) is what's keeping the kingdom together. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Like, what are you doing? Right, no matter how well she stitches. She's not going to be able to keep the kingdom together as well as he is. She, she can't make the king hot. He can. <laughs> like, I just, I was like, think through this. Yeah. Although that doesn't seem to matter to Lady Sarnai. No matter how hot the king is, she's got her lover boy that she's brought from her other kingdom. But I think, like, his people need to think that he's hot. Not just hot, but, like, there's that aura around him. And, like, right. people do want to follow him. And also, Edan can be sent out to war and use his magic. Like, yeah. We are screwing over this country a little bit. Yeah, his good looks were inspiring. They, like, actually yeah. led to people fighting harder for the country. That's how yeah. good looking he was. Like, that's how good his magic was. And you just took it away from him without his consent. Uh, what do you think about the the strange relationship between the two notable females in the book, Lady Sarnai and Maya? You know, they, they do talk, but it's not a good conversation. They're in conflict, and they're really the only two women in the book. Well, there's also the servant girl that we're like, oh, is she in love with Maya? Oh, no. She's, like, just looking for, like, a gay BFF. (laughs) Right. I really thought it was going that way, too. And then... Then it took a turn. And I, it was, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. That's another argument for why this should have just been the first half of the book. Because that, that was an engaging relationship and an engaging friendship that just disappears. Like, so much so I forgot that it even happened. If it was just the first part, then, like, she can, like, become the master tailor. And then this person can become her, like, her protege. Yeah. And, like, she starts this tailor school for women or something. I don't know. This is a different <laughs> different book. Yeah, that's that for was our not fan written. fiction. That's for the that's fan That's for my fiction. fan fiction. Um, <laughs> tailor women. I, yeah, I think that relationship with Lady Star and I, I think that you just, like, knew that they both were in a prison. And you yeah. wanted them to, like, connect over it mm-hmm. and, like, have that moment of just, like, screw these guys, let's figure our way out of this. Yeah. I'm still hoping that that would happen in a second book, yeah. which I know is out. Yeah, and we too. probably have some listeners who've yeah, read yeah. both and they can <laughs> tell us over Twitter. I'm going to be real. One of the readers who told us to read this book read the second book and said it was not good. <laughs> okay. It did not continue the character journeys that we had hoped for. Maybe we shouldn't read that next one then. We can read a Wikipedia summary. There's a couple summaries on the internet that I read about this one to refresh my memory on some of the names. And they were very long. So maybe we could find one like that. Simplify your stories. Give us Hallmark YA books. I think that's what we need. Whatever we read next needs to have like a simpler, less convoluted sort of landscape. Is it time to talk about what we're reading next? I think it might be. What then should we read next? We do have some fan suggestions. And there were some hot summer books this summer that we could also read. Let's do hot book summer. All right. So the one hot book this summer that I heard everybody talking about on a Twitter, and it was all over the Goodreads, is this book called One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. Where are they stopping? 
Uh, I don't know where they're stopping. Um, I think that it takes place on a subway, so I'm assuming that's in New York, but that may just be my New York centrism showing. Wow. And I don't know where they stop, but there will be one last stop, and I heard it was like a time travel thing and that it was super fun. But will one of the stops be love? Oh, we can... Well, we can certainly hope that one of those stops is love, but I am sure, because our producer read this one already, that one of the stops is sex. So for our younger listeners, you may want to sit this one out or get some parental permission. We'll give out a parental consent form before you listen to this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see you next month. Um, thank you for taking a stop with us, and your next stop will be One Last Stop. By Casey McQuiston. Literary Connections is recorded by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. Check us out on Twitter at lit underscore connections if you have any suggestions for what our next reads might be. Tweet us! Be our friends! Next month, we'll be reading One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. See you then! Let's do Hot Book Summer! The the book for that was hot this summer. No, hot book summer. You know, hot hot girl summer. Oh, hot book summer. I'm living fat daddy summer, <laughs> even though I'm not a daddy. And our producer also hates it when I use that phrase, so <laughs> it might be cut. I love it. Keep it in. <laughs> it's gone into bloopers. <laughs>